1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Subi Rautio, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. Yinghong Chang, who is professor of history at Delaware State University, joins me today to talk about his new book, Discourses of Race and Rising China, which was published as part of the Palgrave Mapping Global Racism's Book series in 2019. Discourses of Race in Rising China is a critical study of the development of racialized nationalism in China, exploring its unique characteristics and internal tensions and connecting it to other forms of global racism. The growth of this discourse is contextualized within the party state's political agenda to seek legitimacy in various group efforts to carve their demands in a divided national community and has directly affected identity politics across the global diasporic Chinese community. While there remains considerable debate in both academic literature and popular discussion about how the concept of race is relevant to Chinese expressions of identity, Ying Hong Chang makes a forceful case for the appropriateness of biological and familial narratives of descent for understanding Chinese nationalism today. I will be discussing Discourses of Race and Rising China in more detail with Ying Hong, who we have the pleasure of joining us on the show today. Ying Hong, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Sui, and thank you um, all of the audience. Thank you.
1: I'd like to begin um, our discussion by asking you about about your background and how you grew to be interested in doing research on discourses of race and racialized nationalism in China.
0: Well, um, I am Chinese. I, I am um, Chinese American. Um, I was born in China in Suzhou, um, in in, uh, in China, and I grew up in Suzhou. Um, then I came to the United States in the mid nineteen nineties, in pursuit of a PhD degree in Northeastern University. Uh, at that time, I was already at my mid-thirties, so I, I was struggling a lot, you know, um, on, on the English, my second language. And then I um, um, completed my study in the early two thousand, and and then I came to the Delaware State University uh, teaching history there. Uh, so my original research was. Uh, Maoist revolution, especially the relationship between Maoist revolution and uh, the world, the world revolution in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Um, And I made a connection between the Russian revolution, Chinese revolution, and the Cuban revolution. Um, My dissertation, which became a book in 2009, uh, is titled um, uh, Creating the New Man. Uh, the enlightenment ideals and the socialist realities which is a uh, analytical historical uh, narrative um, about the communist experimentation of human nature in uh, in the three major uh, very much representative communist revolutions the Russian revolutions in the 1930s the Chinese revolution in the 1960s and uh, and the Cuban revolution in the 1960s so uh, that was my uh, 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 my PhD PhD dissertation as well as my first book. And then uh, after that, I continued to work on uh, uh, the history of Chinese revolution, uh, its relations with with the world revolutionary movement. I worked on Chinese uh, diplomatic history. um, And also in the meantime, I grew more interested in intellectual histories uh, of, of communist China, especially in, in the recent decades. And then um, the, and then, uh, in terms of my interest in the study of race and the racism in China, I think there were two uh, episodes, two moments I'd like to mention. Uh, one was about a boy uh, who is my uh, nephew. Uh, and, and and his mother is my uh, cousin. so they live in New Jersey. So um, uh, sometimes in the early 2000, many years ago, okay like 2003 or 2004, I can't recall exactly. Uh, I was visiting their family so, uh, we were driving through some neighborhoods, and in 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 New Jersey, we were going to, uh, to 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 shopping. Okay, so and you know, New Jersey is a state very much racially and ethnically, culturally diverse, right? So we hmm. uh, we saw lots of people different, different backgrounds, right? So yeah, and I was talking to the boys. Parents, okay. My cousin and her husband. So we were we were talking about like Koreans, Chinese, uh, and Jews, African Americans, and uh, 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 Japanese. Okay, so we we were we were talking about the different ethnic group people who 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 we 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 encountered. right, so, and then all of a sudden, uh, the, the little boy who was like seven or eight years old at the time. All of a sudden he said, "Why are you guys so racist?" <laughs> so I, I was completely <laughs> shocked shocked you know you know you know I, I mean, uh, at that moment uh, you know, I was thinking, what am, am I racist? I'm not talking about these people in any negative derogatory terms. We were just like, you know, uh sharing our ideas, perceptions, observations of these people. So how come, you know, you you little boy, you know? <laughs> 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 is, we are racist. And then and then many years later, okay, I realized we are re, we are ethnically uh, profiling those people, okay, sure. which is sure. not not right, right. So but that was the moment. The moment of the beginning. Okay, I began to, and I mean, although before that, I, 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 had been in the United States for many years. Okay, but I was so much, you know, uh, immense in my own studies, history, China, revolution. I had a little, had a little interest. Okay, uh, in, mm. in 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 those uh, issues about the race, race and ethnicity, but. So that was the beginning. That was the beginning. That was the beginning of of, of awakening of the of my you know type of these consciousness. And then the second moment happened in sometime in two thousand eight, when I was in uh, National University of Singapore. I was um, granted a research uh, fellowship there for like three months, doing doing communism in the Cold War uh, in in Southeast Asia. At that time. Um, um I was drawn to a news that happened in China. Uh, a couple of uh, Nigerians uh, immigrant work were, uh, escaping, we're trying to escape the Chinese uh, Chinese police uh, checking their their passport. So they they were running, and they and one of them or two of them fell from the roof of the house, and mm. they got injured. You know, and there was a, uh, a a a protest, a demonstration, okay, uh, launched by uh, many African immigrant workers in China because they believe uh, they were racially profiled by Chinese police. Okay, so that. News kind of um, went viral in, 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 in the Chinese internet world and also attracted uh, international news. So, and then all of a sudden, I began to realize uh, they are, well, they are such issue in China okay, African immigrants in China and the suffering from, <laughs> from, from, from the un- unreasonable police, you know, search or, you know, targeted by these type of things. So, um, and then, uh, and then starting for, and right after that, I searched the internet and I began to read the Chinese news uh, uh, from newspapers and the journals about the, about the, African immigrant workers in China, especially in Guangzhou. Okay, so, and then I switched my research interest from uh, Maoist revolution to, you know, a racial (laughs) issue in China. And two years after that, I published my first article in the China Quarterly. The title is uh, From Campus Racism to... Cyber racism, Chinese uh, nationalist uh, r- racial discourse in the Chinese nation, something like that. Uh, the focusing on the Sino-African uh, relations or the Chinese perceptions of, 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 of black people. So that's and then after that, I gradually expanded my research, uh, you know, in that direction, and then I uh, I decide to focus my research. Uh, at the the level of Chinese nationalism, uh, not in terms of everyday encounters, you know, between different ethnic or racial groups, um, but uh, uh, a a lot more political and ideological uh, in connection with Chinese nationalism. How, because through my readings and the research, I began to realize um, a significant a uh, 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 part of contemporary Chinese nationalism uh, has been racialized has been racialized without the consciousness of just too many Chinese people when you when you point to these aspects in Chinese nationalism, when you talk when you talk to them that when, when, when you tell them you know Chinese nationalism has a lot a lot you know uh, racialized content and they then they will ask you. Uh, you know, what is your, your, your examples? Give me some of your examples. And then after I give them some example, they would say, oh, that's, that's a culture, that's a culture. Yeah. What, 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 what you are you talking about is the culture, not a race, okay? So at that moment, I began to realize that a significant a a misunderstanding uh, in the Chinese consciousness about race and uh, the nation or culture. Okay, so that's how I, uh, you know, uh, grew very much interested in this subject.
1: Yeah, and you and you do that in chapter one. You you specifically highlight that it's very difficult um, for people to recognize that racism and racial thinking exists in China. There's this kind of Chinese exceptionalism, um, and yet, and and that's kind of what your what your book is kind of trying to do is that, that as you just described, national, Chinese nationalism is very much rooted in racism. So let's delve a bit further into um, the contents of your book. In the first chapter titled, Call a Spade a Spade, you introduce some of the predominant Han-centric imaginary and racialized mystification and ritualization that define Chinese nat- nationalism. You also point out that these discourses deny racism and racial thinking in China. Can you tell our listeners a bit about that? What kind of essentializing exists in this kind of Han-centric imagination?
0: Okay. Well, um, the thing is um, the, the racialized Chinese nationalism on the one hand is super sensitive to uh, foreign, foreign, especially Western uh, uh, racist concept against the Chinese, but on the other hand it is super insensitive to the Chinese perception of racism against all of those others. Uh, The thing is um, uh, the way I look at that is the Chinese uh, racialized nationalism uses a number of biological, uh, physical, and natural and very much innate uh, methodological element factors to define Chineseness. Uh, which essentialized the concept of Chinese needs. Okay, so what are those in, in essentialized concepts? What are those uh, biological, physical uh, 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 factors? Well, uh, they use black eyes, black hair, and yellow skin mm-hmm. um, uh, to, 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 to portray the Chinese racial you know, image without realizing that it is racial. That, that is racialized uh, image of young people. And they use the, uh, the concept of ancestor, bloodline, gene- national genealogy. It's not a family, okay, clan genealogy, that it is a national genealogy. Uh, all members of the same Chinese people share the same, you know, bloodline, things like that. And they share the same uh, ancestor, either thousand years old or or, or hundred thousand years old. Okay. And they also mystify the natural environment of Chinese land. Okay. Mountains, rivers, soils, you know, all those things. Um, uh, yellow soil, yellow river. Okay. Uh, and they, uh, they, they, they worship the color yellow. Okay. Um, the color yellow is essentialized in its, 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 its relationship with Chinese society, Chinese culture, and the Chinese people. Uh, one of the reasons is uh, the Yellow River is great, right? And also mm-hmm. yellow is, is, is a color of royal house in ancient Chinese history, mm-hmm. right? It, it signifies kind of a dignitary, right, and, and a superiority. Right, so, so, so when you put all of these things together, you, 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 you ended up having a essential, racially essentialized concept of Chinese people, which is to say, you are not using any political, historical, cultural element to define, uh, Chineseness. Okay, you are you. They are using racialized concepts. Okay, essentialized, which means. Uh you, you were born with these things. And there is no way you can change up those things. And there is no way for other people, non-Chinese people, mm-hmm. to share your Chinese ness So that is a very racialized concept about a particular human community. Okay. But the thing is, uh, as you point out in, in, in your question, okay, um, um, on the one hand, um, um <clears throat> it is so difficult for people to recognize that racism and the racial thinking exist in China, right? That is part of, of your question. Uh, it, because there is a fundamental under, misunderstanding about, about uh, race, racism or racial thinking among Chinese people. Okay, uh, we should say uh, the most important aspect in our understanding of racism is first of all, it is, it is self-racialization. Self-racialization, okay, Uh, you know, uh, those, uh, only when you believe yourself is so special, so unique, will you, you know, treat other people essentially differently. Will you, you know, discriminate, you know, other people. It's just a matter of time and the occasion which people you choose to, to discriminate, right? So, uh, so self uh, racialization uh, for me is is more fundamental than than any other things in our understanding of race racial thinking. Okay, look at those. Uh, you know the 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 myths of of Aryan people, Nordic people, or Yamato people, right? So each of them pick up a particular one or two or even more particular uh, racial others to discriminate, to 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 persecute, right, or to eliminate, right. But first of all, conceptually, these people believe they themselves were so unique, so different, so superior. Okay, so only when you you know, so perceive yourself where you I mean it's just a matter of time for you to pick up a particular group to, to inflict upon them, you know, all of those uh, 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 you know policies, right? Okay. <laughs> so so but this type of understanding uh, in in the Chinese understanding of uh, race and the racism is is basically absent. For most the Chinese people, when you talk about the racism. You know those things. They automatically come up with the the idea of racial discrimination, racial segregation, racial persecution, uh, and the racial uh, elimination, Holocaust. Of those things, okay, they they automatically go to institutions, policies, actions. They don't go. They don't reflect the idea, okay. They don't go to find the intellectual uh, root of racism. So that is why uh, they, they, for many of them, for majority of them, it is very difficult to understand, to accept the fact that in, in, in terms of thinking, in, ten, in terms of ideas, everyone, every, no exception, everyone could be uh, one, one way or another, you know, uh, affected by racial thinking, including Chinese. Okay, so, and also another big reason for, you know, for Chinese, you know, uh, so difficult to to accept this fact is, uh, yes, of course, historically Chinese were victims of Western racism and the Japanese racism. And uh, in reality, we are still suffering more or less, right? Uh, From this type of bias, racial bias. So uh, so here the argument is uh, we have been, victims of you know international racism how come you know we ourselves are very much racist against them so that is another part uh, another part of argument uh, in the in the, in the Chinese understanding in, or in the Chinese denial of mm-hmm. being racist de- themselves
1: yeah <clears throat> absolutely um, and if you, we move on to chapter two of your book you kind of delve into um, how race is 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 um kind of essentialized through pop music specifically and you look at pop music particularly from taiwan and hong kong um that where the lyrics awakened a kind of racial consciousness of of mainlanders of chinese mainlanders can you tell our listeners a bit more about that what kind of patriotic sentiment did these pop songs evoke and how did they enter the politics of national identity and socialization of politics prevalent to this day?
0: Uh, well, the, um, the patriotic sentiment, uh, very much pervasive in those uh, pop music products, okay? Uh, made by uh, the Taiwanese and the Hong Kongese cultural producers is basically um, a complex, a complex of um, a sense of greatness of Chinese cultural society and history versus national humiliation suffered uh, since since the Opium War since the mid nineteenth century. So that is to say, we we are so great, we are so glorious. We contributed to the world so much. We are so uh, we have been so you know generous and humble. Uh, and harmless to the society. I mean, to the global community. But on the other hand, we we have been treated so unfairly by uh, all of those uh, colonialist, imperialist powers and uh, many other countries, and we have been looked down. And uh, so, when you have this very, very you know, sharpened contrast between your you know greatness and your uh, you know unfair treatment from the outside world, so naturally you you come up with a uh, very very strong sentiment, very strong sentiment uh, of self proud and uh, a kind of a hatred of hostile outside environment, which is particularly what the political regime uh, you know uh, wanted. Okay, so. Um, and, the, and, the, all, and all of these things started in the early 1980s. That was the time the original official ideology, which is uh, the Maoist uh, revolutionary ideology, uh, went bankrupt because of the end of, of the Cultural Revolution, right? So the, 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 the new regime, the post-Mao, the CCP regime, was desperately looking for an alternative Um, ideological instrument to use that to unify, to restore the authority, to restore the the regime's legitimacy, and to unify all type of people divided by uh, uh, many problems, disparities, social disparities created by social class, by region, by geographical regions, by, by ethnic identities, and by, you know, the difference between urban and the countryside and even between men in the Chinese and the Chinese overseas, the regime wanted to find a, you know, something transcending all of these disparities to unite uh, all type of so-called Chinese defined by their racial stock. So, uh, you know, when you look back at the intellectual history, history of uh, late nineteen seventies and early nineteen eighties, or throughout the entire decades of nineteen eighties, uh, I think you can you, you, you can understand the uh, the 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 undercurrent, the ideological undercurrent, and the regime's uh, demand. Okay, that eventually. Uh, invested a lot in the in the in the racial discourse of or eventually you know found uh, the racial discourse the most effective the most efficient type of ideological discourse. Okay, in the in the new uh, nationalism. And then and this type of discourse is um, is is uh, propagated basically through two ways. One is pop music. Uh, of those patriotic songs created by, you know, Taiwanese and Hong Kong cultural producers, okay. Um, uh, They were um, lured to the massive Chinese pop music market under the control of Chinese party state. They wanted to make the money, okay, in mainland China. mainland China is the largest market for popular culture globally. So um, and then um, so they they, so they want to go to Chinese market to have their market shares, and then uh, and then China 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 is a party, uh, party state society right. Uh, All those cultural markets were under the control of the party state public and uh, institutions. So uh, there is a mutual uh, kind of um, demand. Okay, on the the, the, uh, cultural producers from Hong Kong, from Taiwan, on that side, they want to come to Chinese market. And on the party state side, they want to use overseas Chinese from Taiwan, from Hong Kong, or even from North America. They want those overseas Chinese to contribute to the patriotic discourse, okay? And then since since all of those producers and the performers, singers, none of them None of them grew up in men in China, and many of them, even you know, without the Chinese passport, they they are American citizens, they are, citizen. they are you know, Singapore citizens, and simply by being a Taiwanese and Hong Kongese, they had nothing to do with men in China's political socialization. Okay, so they have nothing to identify with China's party state, so they cannot use any words, you know, involving the Communist Party, the revolution, you know, of those things. So then. How could you, you know, identify yourself with with contemporary China's political agenda, right? So the only thing they 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 they, they could do is to identify with with a racialized Chinese-ness, which is to say, regardless of my my political identity, even regardless of my passport, immigration status, regardless of this, uh, I am a Chinese by blood, by ancestry, by my outside appearance. Okay, so that means the uh, racial content, racial meaning uh, is the only thing those that the capitalist producers could use to identify with the Chinese ness, could use to get themselves into the cultural market in the mainland. Okay, which is also satisfied the party states the needs because the party states already proposed this racialized concept of Chinese okay but the, but but the those overseas Chinese producers performers were more uh, resourceful in coming up and using this language okay so mutually they satisfied each other's uh, 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 demand you want to make money okay you, you come to Chinese market okay but you needed to contribute to our patriotic you know, propaganda was something. Okay, so, um, uh, and I call this kind type of cultural product, um, patriotic tribute, mm-hmm. patriotic tribute. So, yeah, so, so that's my you know phrasing of of these uh kind of relationship between overseas Chinese capitalist producers and the Chinese party state. And another way is uh, to, to propagate these racialized uh, discourse about Chinese is through uh, school education, uh, especially the history education. Okay, if you read the Chinese history books, basically, especially the early part of, of Chinese history, basically you see it emphasizes the uniqueness and the uh, greatness of Chinese nation and the Chinese history. Okay, it made no... Um, distinction between you know uh prehistorical development that happened in the land today we call it China and uh, all of those civilizational histories. It looks like uh, there is a so-called Chinese uh uh w- which has existed beyond the time, beyond the geography. Okay. it 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 Itself is a self-reliant, self—you know—fulfilled um, uh, type of historical entity. Okay, and today this type of of a trans um, historical Chinese ness uh, is very much pervasive in the Chinese historical narrative.
1: Yeah, and the one song that you build the chapter around the the song descendants of the dragon longda longda Um, What I found, I mean, I completely overlooked this um, was during Donald Trump's visit to China in 2017. Xi Jinping um, directly quotes from this song itself, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so he he proudly. Um, points out or says to president trump or ex-president trump um we inherit and continue to have black hair and yellow skin we call ourselves descendants of the dragon so directly um quoting or taking the lyrics from this gong tai from this um taiwanese song which which obviously became a massive pop hit across mainland china um so it really does um to penetrate the politics and, and the language used by politicians in contemporary China to this day. Um, let's move on to chapter three of your book, um, where you focused on popular and academic discussions that center on Peking Man, which was first discovered in 1925, uh, sorry, 1929, and is believed to represent all Paleolithic hominid groups as the direct ancestor of the Chinese people. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about some of the wider debates that surround the ancestorship of Peking Man?
0: Yes, uh, to answer this question, first we need to put it, uh, the question in the con- in, in the historic context of mm. the 19, late 1920s and the early 1930s. Uh as we all know, that was a time uh a very critical uh, in, in 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 the process of Chinese nation building, right? Um, so the China, China um, very much uh, reunited in the late 1920s, and the Chinese national government was devoting a lot um, in 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 uh, to 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 not only to build a new national identity, but also to develop uh, all of the all of those infra- infrastructural you know things. And but at that time, China was being invaded by Japan, right? And China was also suffering uh, a kind of uh, nation, a, a new type of national crisis coming from the Japanese invasion. So there is a sense of national crisis. And and at that time, uh, Peking Man's skull was was, 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 uh, discovered. Okay, and then at that time, um, the international um, archeological and anthropological community uh, recognized that the Peking Man was so far as of that time, the earliest uh, human fossils, okay. So, uh, and then, so that is a very good news to the Chinese, uh, many Chinese inter- intellectuals, okay, very much uh, nationalist in- intellectuals. Um, because because uh, throughout the Chinese history, you know, the, the, um the the, the ancestor veneration had been part of of Chinese culture, okay. Um, And then um, um, Peking Man was believed to have mastered the technology of making uh, and using fire. Okay, making and using fire, which is uh, extraordinary. Okay, which is extraordinary important step in the human evolution, okay? So um, then uh, these type of archeological facts uh, significantly uh, boosted uh, the national, the sense of national pride among many Chinese intellectuals and the government officers. So naturally they believe, uh, or they took it for granted that those Beijing men are the ancestor of today's Chinese, okay? So that is very much determined by the uh, by the by the kind of uh, ethos of the time, okay, by the ethos, a very much um, serious sense of national crisis demanded something uh very much you know inspiring okay and uh and encouraging okay to to cement the chinese national confidence facing serious outside and and inside challenges okay and then after that or since that time more and more archaeological uh discoveries uh Made by the Chinese uh, anthropo- anthropologists and archaeologists, proved that there were there had been a very 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 strong trend of continuation of the development of early human species. Okay, uh, in the land of China today, so um, it, so it had been a kind of uh, taken for granted for for Chinese people that Peking Man, you know, is our ancestor. And our history as a as a human group uh, could be as long as one point seven um million years. Mm-hmm. Okay, and with baking man is you know is a representative. Okay, the time for baking man originally was believed like uh, half a million years old, but recently uh, it 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 extended to to, to zero point seven million years, okay, 700,000 years old. So, uh, so Peking Man as our ancestor had been part of Chinese nationalism, okay. Um, and then uh, sometimes around the 2000, um, uh, the year the, the, the of the new century, okay. Um, there was an international scientific endeavor, okay. Uh, that, that is um, human genome project. Uh, participated by by, um, uh, genetic scientists from different countries. Okay, the Chinese scientists also joined that uh, uh, multinational research project. And the the result of that international scientific project uh, had an important conclusion, which is to say all modern human species spread out globally today, she is is the same ancestor who were homo sapiens, walking out of Africa no earlier than 200,000 years ago. So which means uh, in today's world, it doesn't matter wherever you live. (coughs) Okay, your ancestors were not as old as, Two hundred thousand years old, which is significantly shorter than the age of the supposed uh, Beijing Man or any Chinese uh, prehistorical ancestor. Okay, so that discovery, because it was joined by Chinese uh, uh, genetic scientists, okay, uh, kind of shocked
1: mm.
0: uh, Chinese. Uh, <coughs> to, Chinese scientific community and beyond that community uh, nationwide, Okay, especially the discourse of Chinese nationalism, because these scientific discoveries now overthrew our, you know, uh, decades old belief that big is our ancestor. Now there is, now the Chinese seems, you know, nothing different from other peoples in the world. We have the same ancestor, okay, and just 200 years old at the most. Okay, so there is nothing special, nothing unique in terms of uh, ancestor, okay. So uh, that discovery um went viral in the Chinese uh, international, uh, in the Chinese internet world, okay, and then um, the, uh, and then the Chinese anthropologists, the Chinese uh, archaeo- archaeologists, responded to this new scientific discovery with very much critical comments. Okay, they believe um, the the only evidence that could 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 uh, prove the ancestry of Chinese people come from uh, archaeology and anthropology, not the genetics. Okay, so. Um, Uh, that was a debate, that was a broader uh, implication of of that debate.
1: Okay, so in chapter four, you move away from um, the kind of ancestorship of Chinese people to explore the images and narratives of Africa and Black people that portray and construct a non-Chinese other that at the same time reflects China's own insecurities and aspirations. Could you expand on this chapter um, and explain how China's new nationalism and self-imaging tactics incorporate Chinese perceptions of Africa?
0: Um, Yes, Uh, again, uh, here we needed to uh, put our discussion in the context of the the creation of uh, Chinese nationalism historically back in the very late 19th century. Uh, which which which, which sowed the seeds of today's near uh, nationalism. Um, in that nationalism, um, the Chinese intellectuals, uh, they called themselves enlightenment intellectuals, came under the heavy influence of Western social Darwinism and racism. Uh, the Western enlightenment ideas were introduced to China. Unfortunately, along with social Darwinism and uh, uh, racism, and for the Chinese intellectuals at that time, they were desperately seeking an answer to the bigger question: Why uh, we 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 Chinese people, we China, used to you know so much ahead of the time, uh, ahead of other nations, but now. Uh, we are completely, you know, uh, overwhelmed by uh, Western country. What is the reason? So they came to, um, so so they, they came to the influence of uh, social Darwinism and the racism, and they believed they found the answer. They found the answer. The answer is, racially we are a little bit inferior to the Westerners, and then socially we 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 failed the competition, the struggle for survival. So now we need to to reform our own society and our own government, things like that. And then uh, there is a uh, global hierarchy based on race uh, in the understanding of the Chinese nationalism at that time. So this is, So in that global hierarchy, racial hierarchy, the white people, the the, the European people, or the descendants of European people in other parts of the world, they were placed at at the top. And the second to to that is is the yellow people, particularly the Chinese people. And then underneath these two um, superior groups were uh, brown people, uh, which refers to uh, people in South Asia, South East Asia, and then, red people, uh, I mean, if indicated by uh, uh, racialized concept of color, okay, so the red people refers to indigenous and the native people in the Oceania and in the Americas. And at the bottom of the racial hierarchy is black people in Africa and somewhere in, also in, in, in South Africa and the uh, the Indian Ocean areas. Okay, so uh, so that is a racial hierarchy. Uh, or we may say that is a globalization of of racial discourse. So uh, based on this type of understanding of global order, racial order, social order, okay, the Chinese intellectuals uh, regarded African people as the most inferior, racially mostly inferior, and socially the most uh, uh, underdeveloped, uh people all completely a loser in the uh social the competition. So uh the and they established a global blackness to perceive all people of uh, darker skin, okay, wherever you are, okay, you, as long as you look that way. You belong to that particular group, hope, hopelessly. You know, uh, uh, in 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 social, cultural, and economic terms. Okay, so so uh, you are you are you are inferior, and you are completely a loser. So, um, so um, so that is something about the Chinese perception of Africans, deeply rooted in in the in the Chinese. Uh, uh, modern uh, nationalist thinking, okay, nationalist thinking, and then these type of tradition continued. These type of thinking continued uh, into the nineteen seventies and the nineteen eighties. Very much uh, apparent in Chinese students' protest, demonstration, protest against African students in the nineteen, in the entire nineteen eighties. Okay, in that type of student movement. Uh, the Chinese students and the intellectuals criticized the Chinese government, uh, undemocratic policy, foreign aid policy, which which gave lots of money and resources to, to African people and uh, um, supported African, many African students study in China. Um, and they believe these, these undemocratic policy making wasted the most important resources for China's own uh, modernization. Okay, so because you are wasting your, the, the, the nation's dearest resource on the people who are hopeless in terms of modernization, in terms of helping China. Okay, so um, uh, that is part of the Chinese perception of Africans in, in, in from a nationalist and very much political perspective.
1: Yeah, and I think that's still, to an extent, still prevalent to this day, general discourse um, still kind of um, refers to, Af- especially African students, but of course, um, large African populations residing and making a living in China, kind of as having to... Um, uh, of. Um, of having to give something back, of owing something to China for, for all this help and the aid that it's provided. But another thing that I really enjoyed about this chapter was how you go into the kind of the political um, discussion or, or the propaganda, um, especially during the Maoist era, where um, which was very much in response to the UN General Assembly, um, which passed a resolution that recognized the People's Republic of China as the representative of the Chinese nation. Um, replacing Taiwan and the UN. So in 1971, you quote Mao Zedong um, saying, African brother, black brothers lifted us up and carried us into the United Nations. And then at the same time, you point out that the 76 countries that voted to support China um, of the 42 African countries, 26 that voted in favor, only six, oh sorry, of six of them were North African Arabic countries. So not even um, the African black brothers that Mao Zedong, um, you know, cherished and celebrated at least through propaganda. And this kind of fabrication and enrichment um, that comes out through Mao's speeches continues to this day. um, And and, um, at the same time, not really, Paying attention to the the European nations, so so if we want to use this uh, African black um, idea here, it, there was a complete disregard for the for the majority of the the, the majority of these votes came from white European nations. Um, so at the same time, it's kind of disregarding the narrative of so, so, solidarity um, and and kind of claiming that to the to the to the African countries. Um, I thought that was really fascinating. I don't know if I explained it. <laughs> coherently just yeah. now. Um, you're absolutely right, me. you're yeah. absolutely right, yeah. Yeah, I think it's yeah. such a fascinating time in history. Um, if we move on to chapter five, this kind of moves more to present day where you delve into the into social hierarchies and identity related discourses that racism and racial discourses perpetuate, including the creation of new political terminologies such as the white left and Chinese, the Baizuong. Um, Can you tell our listeners about the popularity of this growing concept, the white left, and how is it contributing to global racial discourse?
0: Yeah, the concept, uh, the terminology of the strange bai white left, was so popular among Chinese, especially uh, intellectuals, and many of them were very much liberal, you know, intellectuals, pro-democratic people. Uh, why, is, why is the term so popular, so, you know, welcome? In, in, the people, you know, take that term without thinking. Okay, so uh, why so? And my explanation is, um, it is a twisted uh, racialized concept that reflects the Chinese perception of the West. Okay, many Chinese, uh, I mean, under the influence of that uh, Racial hierarchy concept i did I talked about in the, in the previous uh, uh, discussion yeah. uh, they were they were under the influence of that racialized world order, and they believe the West is white peoples west white people created western civilization, and the western civilization belonged to white people, okay. And there, was, there are some some non-white people living, living, working in their society, but they 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 don't count these people as as the part of Western civilization. Okay, so Western civilization is Western, is white people's civilization. Western society is white people's society. And then if among those white people, okay, so-called white people, some of them betrayed Uh, their culture, we treated our politics. They became so, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, tolerant, so well, so welcoming to work to non-Western, non-white people in their society provided them, provided them everything, okay. And then these people are regarded as as traitors of white people, as traitors of Western European uh, and North American society, and they were hated they are hated by these Chinese people who worshiped, uh, you know, uh, white people or the civilization created and maintained, sustained by white people. So they, so that is the, the idea of Bai zuo.
1: Mm.
0: One interesting uh, contrast is, uh, I mean, why I uh, believe this is a racialized concept, a twisted, a very much a twisted uh, racialized concept, because, in the 1930s, 1920s, 1930s, and even into 1940s, there were many uh, Western intellectuals, journalists, politicians, church people, social activists. Uh, they were drawn to Soviet Union, uh, by Soviet Union's uh, kind of seemingly very much unified uh, kind of surface, right? And in uh, um, Soviet Union, there was no uh, you know, unemployment, Problem, right, and the and the and the whole nations were very, very much highly unified by a single, very much loft sounding you know, political ideas, uh, which very much contrasted with the uh, the Western countries deeply in uh, in, in social economic crisis in the 1930s, right. So there were too many of those West Westerners, okay, uh, who become so-called the left, okay, uh, and predominantly, if you look at that. You know racial background. You know, 99 percent perhaps of them were so-called white people. Okay, but in the Chinese political terminology, uh, we 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 forever use the the term uh, Western leftists or Western left. We never use the term white left. Okay, to refer to the people, those individuals. And then why in today, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know the the the. Um, uh, the so-called uh, you know, racial, ethnic, cultural, or social background of all of those uh, you know, uh, liberal intellectuals or progressive people, uh, a lot more diverse, different, diverse than their predecessors, so to speak, predecessors uh, half a century ago, you know, in the 1930s. And then why we are, when we're facing such a very diverse group, OK, the Chinese intellectuals or the Chinese individuals, they come up with a white left. So my explanation is because uh, they, they believe the, white, the, the, the West belongs to white people. So any, any white people betrayed the society, betrayed the principle, betrayed the civilization of their own society, of their own civilization, uh, they use the term white left to portray them.
1: Mm. And then, uh, yeah,
0: so that is my explanation.
1: Mm, right. Um, so moving on to the final chapter, you analyze how discourses of class and race integrate within the logic of the Chinese party state then, and in envisioning its future focuses on discourses of race and racial thinking through a self-claimed ness. And you conclude the chapter with the following sentence, quote, racial nationalism preys not only on others, but often eventually victimizes the numbers, sorry, the members of its own blood community. Can you expand on this statement a bit for our listeners to understand?
0: Well, first of all, um, um, if you employ uh, racist ideology to the level of nationalist ideology then they are predecessors of this type of uh, politics so if you look at the you know Nazi Germany in the and uh, and militaristic Japan in the 1930s obviously you see uh, the the outcome the the the, the the horrible outcome brought by these racial ideologies to, the, to those nations themselves, right? And in today's China, in today's, um, if we, you know, uh, talk about the, from this aspect, okay, about the Chinese uh, the racial discourse uh, articulated in Chinese nationalism, then you, you see um, the Chinese official ideology uh, the new nationalism, the new patriotism, okay, include overseas Chinese people,
1: mm-hmm.
0: okay, regardless of your nationality, regardless of your immigration status, as long as biologically, as long as you biolog- biologically in terms of blood, as of those things, okay, you are Chinese, then you are part of Chinese. We don't care, you know, you're American citizen, you're Japanese citizen. As long as you look like Chinese, we treat you like Chinese. And there is a international united front across the, the global uh, Chinese uh, political community, okay? Which put uh, overseas Chinese people, many of them, in a very dangerous uh, situation. In a very so that is a part of the reason why politically uh, overseas Chinese became the target of uh, you know anti Chinese sentiment in 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 especially in, in the United States. So I do see a political element cross national board political element played some roles in uh, in this global phenomena, anti Chinese phenomenon. Mm-hmm.
1: And I have another question about um- about anti-Asian sentiment, because as I was reading your book, communities were coming together, especially in Northern America, to combat the hatred and racism posed at people of Asian ethnicity. Of course, this is not a recent phenomenon, um, but Asian, anti-Asian sentiment and xenophobia has unfortunately um, risen, um, especially over the past year. And um, as I was reading your book, I was um, browsing through um, different media outlets and I saw circulation of images um, which I'm guessing were taken somewhere in North America, um, and of of banners, um, and one banner in particular caught my eye. Um, it was written in bold was the were the characters. Um, Long the Ren, so descendants of the dragon uh, which you write about in your book and this is the pop song that kind mm-hmm. of um, that that Xi Jinping then later picked up uh, during president Trump or ex-president Trump's visit to China um, that kind of glorifies or it or, or glorifies the, the racial the Chinese lineage through the dragon right so i wanted yeah. to ask your opinion on um how we should interpret the circulation of such slogans um that seek to at the same time of course seek to combat racism but paradoxically draw on patriotic sentiment to evoke the differences yeah. based on race yes i think
0: in the um um your question already provides a a kind of Answers to, to <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, uh, I mean, the that type of science okay shows you the what I call the poverty of uh Chinese patriotic language or nationalist language, which means the only thing they can use as a weapon to strike back, okay, those uh, you know Western anti-Chinese rhetoric is um, by using racialized language itself. Okay, so uh, they are not appealing to the sense of, you know, civility, you know, citizenship, uh, and uh, the universal human rights. They are, not, yeah, they are not relying on those ideas. Instead, they go back to uh, their, their, their old, old weapons, old arsenals to find those racialized concept. Okay, so which is uh, descendants of the dragon. Yeah, so that is to answer your your question.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just thought it was so fascinating. I mean, it's um Yeah, the you know, poverty of the right. language.
0: Yeah, yeah. the poverty yeah. of the language and the concept. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's a very strategic um decision by politicians to, to, yeah. to use it themselves, you know, it's being yeah. regurgitated um, yeah. across yeah, I, pop I, culture, society, and and nice. politics. Yeah. Yeah, I do believe
0: the Chinese Party State has a propaganda plan, and they 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 have been doing this for decades, uh, using racial concept to form a glo- global kind of Chinese diasporic uh, united front uh, yeah. centered in in Beijing. Yeah. yeah.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And your and your book very much argues towards that as well
0: uh, and the data will put over the Chinese in a perilous situation
1: yeah yep absolutely yeah, yeah. well Ing-Hong I've taken up a lot of your time today um, but before we conclude the conversation I wanted to ask you about what you're working on and thinking about these days what are some of your current projects and what have you been doing since Discourses of Race and Rising China was published? Well,
0: in line with my, uh, my interest in, 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 in race and ethnicity, I have two uh, projects going on. One is uh, the, um, the, uh, the impact of genetic science, uh, on the Taiwanese identity and the man in the Chinese identity. I mean, both in both Taiwan and the man in China, uh, scientists and the governments have been using, uh, you know, genetic science, the, the new breakthroughs in this science to redefine uh, the national identity, both in Taiwan and in China. In Taiwan, it put more emphasis on a identity different from the mainland Chinese, which rejected the the Chinese claim uh, of national sovereignty over Taiwan based on racial ideas. Um, And then in mainland China, the uh, scientists have been using genetic uh, scientific research to strengthen, actually to strengthen um, a unified, uh, a biologically unified concept of a Chinese nation. Okay, this is a very interesting twist. twist uh, uh, I mean, a twists again, okay. Yeah. Uh, those Chinese genetic scientists, okay, they overthrew the old national myth of Peking men being Chinese ancestor. Okay, so so they 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 overthrew that, but they are using the new science to construct another type of essentialized concept of Chinese ness. Now they are saying genetically speaking, forget you know ancestor. genetically speaking, we Chinese, including 56 ethnic groups, okay, uh, we are unified by the same bloodline. Okay, so mm-hmm. that's one, one thing I'm working on. Uh, and another thing is um, um, I was awarded the National community centers uh, residential fellowship for next year. The oh. project is is about African-American soldiers building the Burma oh. road during World War II, yeah. So oh, that, uh, that is cool. also, uh, it has a lot to do with Whoa. race and ethnicity. Yeah, so, I, oh. so, so that one is becoming a book project.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, congratulations on your fellowship. And and I imagine the listeners really look forward to reading and hearing more about that as it unfolds. And in and in relation to the to the to the project on genetics, it sounds such a topical and relevant um, research theme and something that we will, of course, also keep an eye out for. Um, For now, I wanted to thank you, Ing Hong, for putting time aside and joining me today to talk about your work. I've really enjoyed it. Your book was so insightful, and, and I strongly recommend all our listeners to go yeah. out to read yeah. Discourses yeah. of Race and, and Rising China. But thank you so much, Ing-Hong, for oh, joining thank you. Me today.
0: Thank you. I I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, and I was so glad I could have the opportunity to share some of my ideas with your audience. And thank you so very much.
1: And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to New Books in China Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone.